Do you want to feel more fulfilled? Could you use some structure to help you focus on your well-being and to cope with stress and avoid burnout? Do you want to feel like you're in the driver's seat of your life? Then we have a program that is just for you. Renew is a workshop series that will show you how to prioritize and improve your well-being, manage your stress in healthy ways, get new perspective and take back control. Join us in June for this live Human Leaders online workshop series with Sally and Alexis. Stop putting it off and invest in yourself and your well-being today. Register now at www.wearehumanleaders.com. High-performing teams have human leadership. Human leadership creates trust, purpose, and belonging at all levels. We've developed three core workshops to elevate your team with human leadership. Find out how to bring human leadership to your workplace at www.wearehumanleaders.com. human leaders. I'm Alexis Zana and together with my co-host Sally Clark, we're delighted to speak with Auntie Manya Andrews and Carla Rogers on today's episode. Our conversation today centers around reconciliation and allyship in modern workplaces. Australia is home to the oldest living culture in the world and we have much to learn from Australian Aboriginal wisdom and dream time. In today's conversation, we have the privilege to learn from the lived experiences of both Auntie Manya Andrews, an accomplished Indigenous author and barrister with degrees in anthropology and law, and Carla Rogers, Churchill Fellow, highly respected program designer and facilitator, and dedicated ally. These women are a dynamic duo. Together, they've co-authored the highly regarded Practical Reconciliation book, and they're co-directors of Evolve Communities. Today, we explore the seven steps to reconciliation, a learning journey fundamental for all human leaders. Let's go. Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast, Ani Manya and Carla. It is an absolute pleasure to have you both with us today. And how we love to begin our podcast is getting to understand a little bit more about you. So I might pass over to Ani Manya if I could first. Could you tell me a little bit more about your personal journey? That's brought you to the incredibly important work that you're doing today. So Nangamaladi, first of all, to you and to all your listeners. So I'm Auntie Manya. I'm from the Kimberley region of Western Australia, is where I was born and grew up. And, you know, I just recall many years ago being at school, sitting out, looking at the blue yonder and wondering what lay out in the big wide world. I've always been fascinated by other peoples, other cultures, other languages and so forth. So I always say to people, my cross-cultural awareness journey began then from a very early age. And then I went on to do a number of things. But Carla and I met up a few years ago. That was in 2011, I believe it was, Carla. Yeah. And on the same project, Carla invited me to join a project that she was doing, working with Indigenous communities in the Gulf country of Australia, up there in Queensland, at Doomadgee and Mornington Island communities. 
And just through talking to one another, Carla and I discovered we had a shared a similar vision for Australia and the world, if you like, and that's to create a kinder, more inclusive Australia. And so once we got chatting, we thought, right, how are we going to do that? And we realized fairly early we'd need to do that through allyship that provided the tool for us to create that. So we went off and put our two heads together, Carla's very extensive experience in community engagement and mine in cultural awareness and combined the two together where we've now developed a number of programs for people based on reconciliation and allyship. So that's where it first began. And since then, we've, we've developed all sorts of products and training, including a number of books that were put out there to further understanding. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing, Auntie Manya. And Carla, I'd love to hear from you. I imagine your journey probably looks a little different. Can you tell us about how you found yourself in this work that you're doing? Yeah, it's so different in every aspect, Alexis. So I'm not Indigenous and one of my ancestors was on the first fleet. So in 1788, came over from England at that time and their offspring actually came and in the end, invaded, but I don't say settle, invaded the area that I've actually call home now today. And I can remember at a very young age, you know, wandering through the bush in Australia. And at that time I was living in a place where there was beautiful, rich coloured Hawkesbury sandstone and looking across at the beautiful blue water and ocean and hearing the spirits of the ancestors, the old people in the bush. And this was quite young. I was a pretty odd kid. But thinking, oh, okay, there's Aboriginal people in Australia, but where are they? You know, I don't learn about them at my school. I don't see them at my school. They're sort of invisible or, you know, at that time it was even preschool. And all I saw was sort of stereotypical images of Aboriginal people. And, you know, favourite program at that time was Skippy, the bush kangaroo. And, you know, I crave for glimpses of Aboriginal people. And so it really started from a craving for an Aboriginal friend. And what's quite interesting is my schooling, you know, I would say that the school I went to was very white or probably there were Aboriginal people, but they weren't comfortable to identify. And so it took me a long time. It took me sort of to my early 20s to actually have a craving or to have that craving met to actually make an Aboriginal friend and start working with Aboriginal communities and people. And in fact, my first holiday when I left school, all my friends went off to Earl's Court in London and Europe, and I actually went to the Kimberley, which coincidentally is where Auntie Manya mm. is from. And then, so my career gradually, gradually sort of worked more and more in this space, and then which took me to having that big project in 2011 where Auntie Manya and I met. So my whole life has been a journey of learning and reconciliation and finding out more about Indigenous wisdom and learning from my mistakes which I've made plenty of along the way. <laughs> Thank you both for sharing your stories. I think there's a lovely sort of interwovenness there and also sort of coming from each from your own spaces and joining together now to do this beautiful work together. And I think what you mentioned, Carla, as well, that the invisibility is really means that we can't have kindness and inclusion. We really need to have visibility as a potentially, I think, a starting point for that sense of kindness and inclusion. And I'm curious to just know a little bit more about why those two terms in particular resonated for you both and what that means for you in the context of reconciliation. Mm, yeah. Great question. Yeah, great question. For me, you know, I grew up 
in a time in Australia when where I remember the discrimination and the apartheidness, if you like, because in fact that's where apartheid comes from, the laws that govern my people. The Afrikaners just gave it a great name, apartheid meaning apartness, separate from. And, you know, like I remember, I was very proudly proclaimed that I was born in the Derby Native Hospital, which was the black hospital, because there was a hospital for black people and a hospital for white people. So I grew up during that time. I remember my people not being visible in Australian society. We now have many Australians come on board and do an acknowledgement of country, of Aboriginal people. And I always say to people, because people worry whether it's tokenistic or not, and I say, you cannot imagine what that feels like to people that have been excluded from Australian society and made invisible. And I remember that time. And so whenever I hear an acknowledgement of country, it means so much more to me personally, because it's a way of saying to us, the First Nations people, saying, I see you. And not only do I see you, but I respect you. And that is such an incredible thing. So that for me was the impetus of, you know, wanting to become visible and then wanting to be treated fairly. So that's why inclusivity is very important to me. Mm. And so at Evolve, we have three values. It's quite simple. And one Mm. of those is kindness and kindness in kindredness. And so we might talk more about what you can learn from Indigenous wisdom. But for me, I think that's even from that young age, I always had a sense that the non-Indigenous person, you know, I felt like I had so much to learn from Aboriginal people and there was this strength and resilience and this wisdom. And Auntie Mm. Munya and I, when we met, we really connected that we both had a similar philosophy that, you know, everyone has this similar human needs and and we define those Mm. needs for at Evolve and other people have defined them as well, but things like the mm. need to contribute, to be valued, to belong, you know, and then we also recognise that the celebration of what makes us different as well, but starting from a place of connection and then celebrating difference. But for me, I guess, you know, I've lived a very privileged life and a big part of my being an ally is acknowledging that privilege and understanding it. So from that privileged position at a very young age, I felt quite traumatised by anything that excluded another person. So unkindness, Mm. I guess, you know, and racism. I grew up around people with racist beliefs and even I, uneducated, even to this day and age, you know, I still would have racist beliefs because they're things that we're taught from a very Mm. young age and might come from things that now are unconscious bias that we're not even aware of. So I guess for me it was a sense of, justice, but also just how much we can learn from being inclusive of everyone. And that's the only way we're going to move together forward in a kind way as a nation is when we see and value the wisdom within everybody. But I particularly think that a culture, a people that have, you know, one of the continuous oldest living cultures on this earth that have been around for tens of thousands of years, people walking down the streets of Broken Hill or Mildura in Western New South Wales can trace their ancestors back to nearly 50,000 years. And I've worked with those people. I lose mine at 250 years. So how much have we got to learn from that wisdom? So that's what kindness and inclusion really means to me. And just 
really disliking mm. people being treated unkindly and unfairly. Yeah, yeah, that resonates so strongly for both of us and for we know for our listeners that we are human leaders because you know that's certainly what you're speaking to, Carla, as well from my own experience, that real sense of sorrow on some level at the loss, at the absence of reverence for the wisdom that there is and so really beautiful work that you're both doing together to shed light on that and to even bring that into modern organizations through your trainings and the products that you offer. And I know you work with seven steps to reconciliation and allyship that you've developed. And I'd love if you could tell us a bit more about them, about these steps and how they can help modern organizations and modern leaders to create change. Mm. Yeah, well, I think frameworks are always useful. And so really, these are the seven basic building blocks, if you like, of reconciliation, the modules that we think people need to learn about, to be informed about, to educate themselves so that they can contribute to this process, this journey of reconciliation. It's particularly designed for people like myself, who are non-Indigenous, to increase my confidence and understanding of the importance of me being an effective ally to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But of course, in teaching those skills, they're cross-cultural, that you can apply them to all relationships and for benefit. So the first one is actually reconciliation. And as Auntie Manya said, we like to teach frameworks and we have a framework within that, which has been so popular. It's blown us away because it's so simple. Yes. Three steps. The R3 culture. The R3 culture. And... If you're in a tricky conversation, if you can't get your child, for example, to wear their raincoat off to school in the pouring rain, you can revert to these mm. three R's. And so it's to reflect, to stop and, you know, just pause yeah. and identify what the, what's at the, the heart issue. of the matter. Mm. Relate, put yourself in their shoes and reconcile, sit down and Work sign a, a way solution forward. together. Yeah, yeah together. Yeah. So reflect, relate, yeah. reconcile. So. And then when we go to each of the other modules, we give an example of people come up with their own examples of how they can apply that framework to Mm. different challenges. The other important aspect in reconciliation we talk about is the one in 30 principle. So 3% of our population in Australia is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So if you're in a room of 30 people, for example, only one of those people will be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander statistically. So what Auntie Munya and I and Evolve, we're really strong about is providing people with the tools, the 29 and 30 people like myself, to step up and do all of the important work that needs to be done to take our country forward together. And, yeah, so people, because we can't keep going back to the auntie manias of the world, even to say, to teach me, I want to know about this, that's why we've designed these tools so that people have a way of educating themselves but without burdening the people that, you know, Aboriginal people and who have so much work to do already. I couldn't agree more. And Carla, something that I sort of resonated with what you were saying there, you know, also as a white Australian, is that very often those of us who would like to be allies don't always know where to start. And I think that that framework gives us a very neat way of understanding. Firstly, it's beautifully simplistic. It's something that is very actionable. And as you mentioned, whether it's sort of trying to get our kids to wear shoes or raincoats or have tough conversations, that pause and reflection and that opportunity to just shift perspective and say, hey, what might this other person be experiencing in this moment? How am I contributing to that? How can I do better? 
and then come together to sort of create something from both angles that is bringing us together as human beings, connecting us together as human beings, rather than driving us further apart. And something that I've witnessed so much is that when we feel that sense of shame in the moment, when we think we've said something wrong, we've done something wrong, often people double down on that behavior because they're so uncomfortable with admitting, oh goodness, I've said the wrong thing. And again, I just appreciate that this framework is an invitation to sort of take ownership for that and say, well, let's just reflect. Perhaps I did say something that wasn't the right way about it or was offensive, but it's an opportunity for us to work together to find a solution that works for both of us. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's the first step. And, and then we go on step two, yeah. we look at how amazingly diverse Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Australia mm. is. And to do that, we just we start with looking at the map. The Indigenous um, map. Yeah. yeah, with the 500 different nations. Nations, and, and languages. And just so at a glance, people automatically see, oh, my God, there's so much diversity. And we remind people that although there are many things we share in common as Indigenous people through our indigeneity, that there are also many differences so that people have that understanding. Yeah. And we do the comparison of, we do actually superimpose a map of Europe over the map of Australia and, you know, have people go through an exercise Mm. of imagining travelling through Australia with their passport. And then we talk about important cultural Mm. protocols as you move from one country to another and acknowledgement of country and welcome to country. And we have people do a short meditation or visualisation of going to a special place on country and really coming to a point of gratitude. And it's that sense of gratitude that you can express when you are doing an acknowledgement. We look at identity, what it means to be Aboriginal, and we look at breaking down stereotypes. And Auntie Manya has a beautiful expression when it comes to identity. Oh, I always say to people, us Aboriginal people, we laugh and joke about it and say, you know, after all, a cup of tea is still a cup of tea, no matter how much milk is added. And I say to people, well, my milk's Scottish, but I'm still Aboriginal. And so it's like, what joins us as Indigenous people? And why is it important to emphasise your Indigenous identity here in Australia? We have a quiz about Aboriginal Australia that the questions are designed to break down stereotypes. So people, your listeners can jump online and do that. We have Mm -hmm. that online. It's been very Mm -hmm. popular. Yeah. And one of the questions is, which state has the most Aboriginal people? And most people get the answer wrong. It is, in fact, New South Wales, largely because of Sydney being the largest city. But also it calls into question well, who are Aboriginal? You might pass an Aboriginal person on the street and they'll be fair-skinned and maybe blonde and blue-eyed even, but they're still Aboriginal. So, Still um, a cup of tea. Mm, still a cup of tea. When we're yeah. looking at history, which is step three, we look at truth-telling, which is an important part of the voice to parliament and the Uluru Statement of the Heart. But we look at it from two perspectives, Auntie Mania. Yeah, we look at it from the two perspectives from white and black. So we start with the slogan of white Australia has a black history the from the NAIDOC poster of 1987. And that was considered very controversial at the time. It got upset, you know, about how dare you talk about Australia having a black history. And the black history does refer to the murders, the massacres, the genocide, 
But we say to people, well, you can read this in one of two ways. You can read it in a positive light or a negative light. And the negative light does refer to all of those nasty things that happen. But the positive light is just simply acknowledging that before Gadia people came to this country, that there were black people living here, each with their own languages and cultures and customs and practices and so forth. And where's the harm in acknowledging that? But also to have a holistic view of history, you have to look at the white and the black, like yin and yang, to have a more deeper appreciation of it. And we shouldn't shy away from those topics either, but nor should we stay stuck there in that place too. It's about moving forward as well. Yeah. yeah. The impact of so a shared history of 250 years, we look mm. at that and how the impact's still very much alive today of stolen generation. And only as of a couple of years ago, it was quite a large percentage of Aboriginal people over 50 identified as being part of the stolen generation. And so we often deal with stereotypes. One stereotype is why can't Aboriginal people just get over it and move on? Mm-hmm. and get over history and well it's not when something happened it's the impact of something and the impact is still very much much very today. much felt today yeah but when we look at the enormous impact of our shared history of yeah. 250 years we look at the length of time going back into dream time and we roll out this yellow ribbon which is 10 meters long and on this 10 meter long ribbon representing 100,000 years our shared history is only 2.5 centimetres. Yeah, and it really or, puts that into perspective for some people. Or yeah. to look at it another way in a 24-hour day, our shared history is only six minutes. But the incredible impact yeah. we've had in that. And yeah. so for people to they say, well, how can I be an ally? And it's to listen to people's stories and acknowledge people's stories, watch movies, read books. You know, we talk about rabbit-proof mm. fence and... There's so many ways for us to honour people's mm. stories. Yeah, so that's step three. Sorry, we're only half, yeah. halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> All good. <laughs> Did you want us to talk about other ones? Steps, or? Yeah, if I may. I think it's so beautiful to hear because what I love is there's a real richness that you are bringing with all these different approaches to not only sort of explain in sort of very visual ways, which I think sort of connects people with information really immediately, but also allowing people to have this almost emotional journey of understanding and seeing that breaking down these stereotypes one at a time actually becomes something that they're able to more deeply relate to themselves and then feel that understanding, that warmth, and then that inclusion and that kindness coming as a natural consequence. So I'm super curious to hear next for. So for each step, we have immersive activities that enable that along yeah. the way, yeah. So it is, Sally, exactly what you said. When you're going through this, it is a journey of self-reflection. So we share with people some concepts and thoughts, but it's all about, well, how does this apply to myself? How do I relate to this? So a yeah. perfect one is step four, where we look at unconscious bias and cultural baggage, which mm. we all have. And to do this, we have people speed dating and we ask people a question like, if someone doesn't look me in the eye when I'm talking to them, what might I think of them? And we ask people to think back to what you were taught as a child, for example. Another question would be if someone doesn't say please or thank you, you know, what Mm. might I think of them? And people responses, for example, to what I was taught as a kid about someone that doesn't look me in the eye or 
is that it's rude, it's disrespectful, they've got something to hide. And in mm. fact, it just came to me recently a memory of I went to a Catholic yeah, primary school and was getting in trouble possibly for talking too much. <laughs> but I do remember no. being out in front of the class and I was so embarrassed. So I was looking down because I was embarrassed. And I remember her saying to me, you look me in the eye, you sneaky little girl, what have you got to hide? So that was so ingrained on me then, that sense of shame. So I always made myself look at someone in the eye after mm. that. But we've pulled out seven key things here that generally mm. in my culture, they're directly the opposite The opposite in Aboriginal culture. And it varies across a number of cultures. Mm. So for eye contact. Yeah. So for our people, we don't have a lot of direct eye contact at all. In fact, it's considered quite rude to be looking someone in the eye. And our people actually say, of Gurria people, they say they've got hard eyes, hard eyes because they peer inside you. And we're taught from a very young age to hang our heads down when we're talking and especially when an elder is speaking. So that's our way of showing that elder our respect. And then an elder in the wider society can be someone in a position of authority, like a police officer, a teacher or a nurse. and so. You know, when a little curry kid's at school and what's the first thing the teacher says to them is, look me in the eye when I'm speaking to you. And they've just asked that kid to break one of the most basic protocols in our culture, which is not to look you in the eye. And we say to people, it doesn't mean we're hiding from something or being shifty or not listening is another one, because I find Aboriginal people are, are the world's greatest listeners, actually. There's times when I'm giving a talk, say, to a bunch of Aboriginal women, and they're doing everything except looking at me, looking out the window, looking down at the ground. But geez, they can repeat back to you verbatim what you just said because we're listening at the same time that we're, you know, looking about us. So it's about giving people examples of that. And the same thing with please and thank you. There are no words for please or thank you in any Aboriginal language. There is in Torres Strait Islander in their language. I forget the word for please, but the word for thank you is so. So they'll say big so to everything at their meetings and whatnot. But with our mob, not so. But there's a reason for that also. And we explore that when we do one of the other steps, which is kinship, the idea of reciprocity, because you're so obligated to everyone in society. Everyone's looked after. It makes these words superfluous, please and thank you, because they're already done for you. So we're saying just because our kids don't say it doesn't mean that they're not grateful either. You can express your gratitude in other ways. So, for instance, in Bardi, my people would say something like, Galagona, that's good. That's their way of saying thank you. Galagona, that's it. But it doesn't necessarily translate in English. We also explore Aboriginal English. Mm. And another aspect that we explore is the role of silence and just wanted to mention that briefly before we talk a little bit more mm. about kinship with silence for me it's perceived as it usually in conversation mm. or if silence is perceived in my culture as a gap or you know avoid something to fill in and so we ask people you know if I was to ask you a question how long before you might start feeling uncomfortable and thinking in a group when someone's going to answer and it's so interesting when we ask that and we see how long it takes for people to respond. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. some people will say, oh, about 10 seconds, but they've responded within one second yeah. kind of thing. So like to use an analogy for, you know, 
a glass of water, for example, for me, if it was empty, just imagine that silence. For me, in my the way I've been brought up, that's empty. That glass of water, you know, that silence mm. is a void. But for Aboriginal people, it's that glass of water in silence is full. It's full already. Immerse yourself in that. Yeah, that's part of communication, actually. It's a linguistic tool to gather more information by allowing time for silence and to sit with it. And we actually refer to Auntie Miriam Rose, who's a famous Indigenous Australian here, who teaches about silence through Dadidi, which is an Indigenous meditation practice where we're taught once again from a very young age to sit with silence and to that way we communicate with our environment as well, not just human beings, through silence and just the importance of that. It's so remarkable and listening to you both speak about this concept of silence then, can't help but reflect on my childhood where there was never a moment of silence in my household and, you know, how different I might be as an adult to me because that's also, you know, we want to talk about it in sort of psychology terms. It's a way to regulate ourselves and our emotions and as you said, Auntie Manya, be with what already is and that is the moment already has everything we need. We don't need to fill the moment. And I think it's such a Western thing that, you know, more is more. <laughs> We're always filling gaps, filling silences. And oh, it's such a beautiful and culturally so different understanding of what it means to be in silence. I'm so grateful that you shared that with us. Yes. Just for your listeners, just Google Auntie Miriam Rose or Miriam Rose. We show a three minute video yes. of her and we could spend a whole day just unpacking each, each sentence. I have no doubt. I wanted to ask another question here, and we've touched on this word kinship a few times, and I think that's where you're headed with the seven steps of reconciliation as well. And, you know, this is something that in our work at Human Leaders, we see such a struggle for modern organizations, and that is truly creating belonging and inclusion. And do you think that there are lessons that we can be learning from First Nations kinship around this idea of belonging and inclusion? And I'd love for you to share some of those thoughts with us. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about belonging. Our culture teaches us that we're all interrelated and interconnected in some way. Not only do we have familial terms for each other, but you're related. Like, for instance, if you share the same name as someone, you're related. We call that Gumbali, you my Gumbali. There's another Manya in the room. She's my Gumbali, just purely on the basis of having the same name, which carries a certain energy, for example. But not only are we also related to one another, but the animals and plants and trees and stars are all our relatives as well. And so we teach about a kinship system, and there are many different models around Australia, but basically they share the same fundamental concepts of belonging. And so what we do we call it skin in Northern Australia, S-K-I-N. All throughout Aboriginal Australia, every person belongs to a skin group of some kind and the names vary across the country. I always say to people, it's like uh, zodiac signs and horoscopes. You know, you're born into particular groups that are related about whether they're air, earth or fire. Same with skin. And so what we do is we place these people into the different skin groups and show them how they're related to one another. The system is absolutely amazing. The mathematicians absolutely love it 
because of the algorithms of kinship and the mathematics contained in the system is just incredible as well. But it is all about relating and belonging to one another. In fact, there are no words for orphan in any Aboriginal language because there are no orphans. Everybody belongs. There are no outsiders. Everybody fits in and you're obligated to one another in some way. And it can be quite hilarious when we take people through the kinship system and they, they have to set off and go and find all their relatives and you just get these gutty people running around going, are you my cousin brother, my uncle? And it's just hilarious. But at the end of the day, they end up with a whole list of relatives. And then to drive the point even further, we do another activity with strings, colored strings. So you'll have red string for the mother to child and um, people are holding these strings. And then we'll have green for who you are straight for. And it's got nothing to do with sexuality. It's got to do with the lines that are drawn. People see that there's lines that are Again, it's mathematical. It's fantastically so who, who set up. You can marry. Who you can marry. Yeah. And so straight, they're holding these green strings and you get the parental strings are red. Then you get this also one taboo relationship in our community. And that's with your mother-in-law. You're not allowed to speak to your mother-in-law and she can't speak to you either. The way we show respect to our mother-in-laws is to give her our back. So again, it's very opposite to the mainstream society. But it doesn't mean you don't respect her, that being respectful. But I always say to people, my people have been around for thousands of years. We really understand human dynamics. So we avoid problems with mother-in-laws especially because you're just not allowed to interact with them in the first place. From that, people just really gain a strong sense of family because one of the stereotypes of Aboriginal people are they're all related to one another, except this one's true. We are. And we show exactly how we are. And from that, people just walk away with a greater appreciation for our people, the cleverness of the system, because it's designed to avoid interbreeding with one another and the genetic complications that can come from that and so forth. And just that depth of the knowledge and how everything fits in. Our stars and planets and trees, they fit into the skin systems too. That explains why you, you might call eagle your brother or uh, the tea tree my sister and so forth. So you have these familial relationships with everything around you. One Aboriginal woman who I used to work with, we were out at lunch one day and we passed these tea trees and she stopped and she said, oh, hello, my sisters. And they were her sisters in the kinship system. How are you going? And she went and she said, you're looking really ragged these days. And she started to clear them a bit there you go, my sisters. And then we continued walking. And it's just that reverence and love for everything around us. And that's the magic of the system. And what we then say to people is, how can we create this at work? How do we create this feeling of connection and belonging so that we can feel like family? So one of the exercises that people get away to, to reflect on how they might develop or create that in the workplace. That's such a beautiful description, Annie Manya, of I think for me what it feels like is there is no non-belonging because by definition to exist is to belong. And I remember being a little kid and we used to go camping in the outback in South Australia and I have this profound memory of looking up at the stars and being feeling so small and so profoundly connected at the same time. I've thought a lot about that memory and there were probably quite a few of them that have sort of just melded into one for me, but that real sense of 
an innate belonging. So it almost feels like what you're describing is almost just a reminder of what is and that in our modern society, there's a lot of pulling away and distinction rather than just acknowledging that innate always belonging. Absolutely. And how can you feel that you don't belong? We we saw that during COVID where people were feeling disconnected and we would just resort to Aboriginal wisdom and say, no, we're all connected. We're all related. We have to reach out to each other. So there's no sense of not belonging. You're absolutely right. No, Auntie Manya, because I've struggled with that mm. all my life, Sally, that sense, and I've said to Auntie Manya, oh, yeah. I just don't feel like I belong here or to this or to that. And Auntie Manya looks at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> she doesn't get it. She's yeah. like, how can you not belong? Yeah. Like, as you said, you exist. Yeah. Country is country. The country land is, yeah. is family. Is you know, mm. you belong to the mm. country. People ask me all the time, how can I develop a stronger connection to the land? And I say, the bones of your people are buried in this earth. You already have that connection. You don't have to go off looking for it. Your people are buried in this country. Gosh, what more of a stronger connection do you want? Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. And Auntie Manya, on that, there's so much that we could sit and unpack there because it's such an incredible kinship system. But it sounds to me as well that through this system, through this innate interconnectedness, that there simply is more tolerance and acceptance and less otherness. And I just wonder, does that also sort of, because again, something that we see very much in organizations and in the Western world in dialogue right now is a lot of issues around belonging with sexual orientation, gender, all of these different sorts of ways that we can label and create otherness amongst ourselves. In Indigenous culture, does that transcend that? Does that kinship transcend those differences that we might notice in one another otherwise? Absolutely. And in fact, after we take people through the kinship system, the question I pose to participants, I show slideshows, different photos of human beings. I say, what would happen, do you think, in our hearts and our minds when we see everyone as family? And there might be someone whose skin is different, or perhaps they've got some markings on their face or tattoos or they're wearing strange clothing like the hijab and that. We don't understand why they do that. Or perhaps they share different political opinions and we always put Auntie Pauline up there as well, Auntie Pauline Hanson and Donald Trump, you know, but they're family. And just how people respond is just amazing. They're touched and they come back with, oh, we become more tolerant. We become more understanding. We become more inclusive. And that's the wonderful gift that particularly Indigenous people's kinship systems, because many other Indigenous groups have this strong sense of family, Native Americans and so forth and others. And that's the gift we bring to the world as saying, we are related to one another. And not only that, but we have a responsibility to look after each other. So it does make us more tolerant and more accepting of these so-called other differences that are around. They're still family. And I think there's so much benefit to be gained from that, almost that leaning into that relationship and understanding it, because when we free ourselves to care about each other and to care deeply, it enriches our own lives, it enriches our community. It can feel, I think, for some people quite scary to get to, but I love that the layers of learning that you share sort of bring very naturally, I think, people towards this sense of that's actually just innately our inherent humanity. 
and and leaning into that and creating those stronger bonds, caring for one another, taking responsibility for ourselves and each other is a, a beautiful and uplifting gift. I'm curious, I know in your work, you've mentioned a yarning circle and this concept really fascinated. I'm wondering if you could explain to us a little bit about this customary practice for Indigenous Australians, just what the purpose is and, and what the benefits might be in this style of coming together of a yarning circle. Well, it's the way you do business in our communities and business is, is used in a more broader sense. It's not just about economic transactions, but about issues that have to be dealt with in that society. And so when we're called together to work out what we're going to do about certain issues, whether it's suicide or drug prevention or substance abuse or whatever, we hold meetings in circles. We always traditionally have done so, particularly our teaching circles. So these circles over time have been called yarning circles because that's what they do. You talk. The wonderful thing about circles, of course, is it makes us more egalitarian. It's round. Just think of King Arthur and his round table, the knights. You know, that concept is round, so it enables everyone to participate. Sometimes also a message stick of some kind is passed and used around that controls who gets to speak, like when who's got the sticks can speak and so forth. So it ensures that every voice is heard and it stops the louder voices from being too loud and taking over meetings, which invariably happens in the mainstream. Once again, just emphasizing the collectivity and connectivity between us and that Everyone is to be valued and every opinion matters. They've come back into vogue in the last 20 years, 10, 15 years, maybe. Yeah, um, but, but even when we started, mm, so we mm, always ran our, our training, our workshops as yarning circles. Mm, and particularly when we first started, we 10 years ago, whenever. Mm, it's still amazing the resistance that we had to yeah. having no tables and chairs. In yeah, a room that and was just a big having one. Chairs in a circle, and I've yeah. noticed that that resistance now that we're starting back again in person has gone even more. Now we used to arrive at venues and we'd send all our guidelines, and we'd still Auntie Manu and I would be having to. We don't do it anymore, but yeah. we still would have to lift tables and yeah. chairs out the way. But I think with COVID, people doing more online. Interestingly, we run Zoom yarning circles as well, and Zoom in, or online sessions, quite egalitarian mm. in that way, yeah. in the sense that everyone's on the screen, got the same size box on the screen. And I've found since going back in person now, it's quite nat- it seems more natural for people to sit in that circle. So what I'm really hearing from that is that the circle really creates, I guess, that even playing field for everyone to come together, to be on the same page, to feel included, and to, I guess, have an opportunity to be witnessed by everyone else in the circle for whatever they bring to the circle that day. Yeah, and it's about creating a sacred space. The circle is really sacred for us, and it's where people can feel safe and protected. One of the biggest things in our training is we say there's no guilt, no shame, and no blame is the other one. So we've got to create safety for everyone where you're free to express your opinions. I always say to people, you can ask us anything. Don't be afraid because if you don't ask, you'll never learn. And so we try to create that safety and the yarning circle helps us do that. But then Mm. backing that up with frameworks like the three R's to have conversations that might feel a bit unsafe to start with. Yeah. And I think it's that 
you know, and Sally and I find this in our work at Human Leaders as well, when people feel like their back's up against a wall or they're going to feel a sense of shame or they're going to feel a sense of blame, they'll either do two things. They'll double down on the behavior or they'll just clam up. You won't create that beautiful space to actually help someone move through that. And a lot of the time, I think when it comes to reconciliation, there's so much ignorance there. People don't know what they don't know. And when we have the safety to ask our inverted commas stupid questions, we get to learn from that opportunity and we get to perhaps be in that shame for just a moment. But having that shame witnessed by someone else helps us learn the lesson in the moment and then be better. And as Brene Brown famously quotes, we're not here to be right. We're here to get it right. And I think that's the most important thing. Not always having to be right, but making sure we're doing what it takes to get it right, to learn the lesson. And Carla, I'd love to direct this question to you because I imagine that through your journey, there's probably been many moments of shame and relearning and perhaps rethinking some of the things you thought to be true and right about the world. I'd love to know from you, what have been some of your most challenging and also your rewarding lessons as an ally? And what would you recommend as the best place to start for someone who's wanting to be a better ally? Yes. Oh, Angie Mang is laughing because she's probably thinking of lots of mistakes <laughs> I've made. Uh, one thing I, I do want to say with that is that I've just found Aboriginal people to be so forgiving, <laughs> so forgiving of mm-hmm. mistakes and blunders. And I've made lots. Auntie Mang has <laughs> witnessed quite a few yeah. and I still absolutely still make them as well. And <laughs> Challenges, I think, challenging. Yeah, one of those big challenges is not knowing where to start. Being so frightened, fear, I think, is a big challenge. A real fear of offending or saying or doing the wrong thing. I would say that for me probably was the biggest challenge and, and I think still is for a lot of people. Also not wanting to seem insincere or, you know, an Aboriginal English word is gammon, just doing it for tokenistic reasons or something like that. Not real. Not Not real. Yeah, not genuine. So where to start, how to overcome this challenge, I feel that the biggest thing is self-educating. The biggest thing has been educating myself and maybe even not rushing out there to, you know, I said I had this, and this sounds a bit gammon too now when I say it, but this yearning for an Aboriginal friend, but not rushing out there and, making lots of blunders, but sort of slowly, slowly, slowly taking little actions, taking actions to be an ally, to stand up to racism. You have to be bold and courageous and take bigger actions, but you don't have to start at that place. Mm. You can find out, for example, if you don't know, find out who the traditional owners are. Find out what this acknowledgement of country thing is all about. And when we're teaching acknowledgement of country, I say to people, I it's not something I I fairly rarely do it in a formal situation, but every day I try to remember when I go for my walk and suddenly hear this beautiful bird and I'm like, oh, that's right. I have an acknowledged country. Hello, old people. That's Carla. I'm going for a walk through your country. It's also a practice, as Auntie Manu would say, to ask for safe passage. So if yeah. I'm, I'm trying to learn to surf this year and I'll go out there and I'll suddenly see a grey thing and I think oh quick acknowledge country hello people please protect me from the sharks like 
And I didn't do that the other week, and I ended up getting a surfboard in the yeah, lift and some... six stitches. And... I was say, country just slapped her. Slapped me in the face. Oh, wow. Wake up, girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, I'll is... have to remember that one the next time I'm surfing here in Byron Bay then. That's, uh, yeah, I'll start doing that. Yeah. That enables people to think about why. And while it's respectful, it's also for your own benefit, I say to people. It is about making sure you don't get lost in this country. It's a huge country. So if you sing, call out to the spirits and the people, they'll help you. They'll stay with you. You won't get lost. You won't get bitten by snakes and so forth. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so the yeah. biggest challenge is fear and not knowing. And then the greatest way to overcome that is to start just mm. educating yourself. Watch TV, read books, and then you'll feel more confident and comfortable to make those first steps in it. A lot of people say to me, I don't even know an Aboriginal person. But what they do discover as they become more aware is that they did know Aboriginal people, but they just had in their mind what an Aboriginal person was. I think that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Carla. I really love that you've described that fear being such a prominent challenge. And I think, as we discussed as well, the fear of making a mistake or fear of feeling ashamed, fear of some of the other emotions that might come up in that journey. And what I also heard was this. I think taking responsibility, I think rather than some of the narrative, I think is kind of puts this onus on Indigenous Australians to the change, you know, we almost to take responsibility for this process that I think is actually very much the responsibility of us as white Australians to start and to find our way in that. So I think that's... Absolutely. And as the 97% too, Sally, mm. how can we put this on yeah. 3% of our population? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Point in that, Carla. And I think when you mentioned you know, doing it in a gammon way, like in a really inauthentic way. And that's something that, you know, very often frustrates us in the work that we do with organizations. It's why are you doing this? Is it to improve economic outcomes or is it because it's the right thing to do for human beings? And I think, you know, we have a lot of woke culture for sure right now, which I think can be problematic to that true authentic connection. You know, it's really about coming back to self and coming back to connection and truly valuing every life on this planet and every human being that we come into contact with. And the fact that this beautiful country that we live in, Australia, has such a deep, rich history waiting for us to dive into it and acknowledge it and respect it and connect with it. And I think that when you come to it from that sort of more self-aware, personal and very spiritual place, the connection it can't be anything but authentic when you look at it that way. So true, Alexis. And as an ally, it's it's about acknowledging that fear and then, you know, taking little courageous acts. So one of my courageous acts is doing, I do a meditation exercise for people to find their why. Why would they want to acknowledge country? And it's interesting, we just did this in a big, massive group the other week and a lot of construction workers and I'd spoken to one of them and I thought, oh, this guy's going to hate this exercise. And it was really interesting. We took everyone through it and his feedback was in the end was, oh, I love that activity that we did to connect to you. So it's again about, you know, don't make assumptions about people, but sometimes be a little bit courageous to do something you might feel a little bit of fear about. Acknowledge that fear and have a go as well. I think that's wonderful. Carla, as a meditation teacher myself, I know there's been instances where I feel nervous about how whether I'm coming across as too hippie, that's I think something that I've had quite, I feel nervous about. And then having that feedback is of course, wonderful validation that these practices are 
can be often quite simple, but very impactful, particularly for people who are experiencing it for the first time and finding, you know, that intrinsic sense of why. And it really empowers, I think, you know, us to change our behavior and to have more courage. We have many more questions, but I'm going to narrow it down to one for both of you, Auntie Manya and Carla. Thank you so much for your time with us. For leaders in organizations who are listening right now and who really feel like they want to drive change to create more reconciled and more inclusive, kinder workplaces, what would be some first steps that they can take or where might they be able to start to create those kind of kinder and more inclusive workplaces? Mm. I don't want to harp on about it, but it does start with educating ourselves. And when we talk about education, we say to people, go with your passion. You know, if you're passionate about art, you know, get into, for example, Aboriginal art and find out the stories behind that art or If you like reading, you know, read in that area and also eventually find your local communities and what's happening and connecting to those events to then bring this into the workplace. There's lots of programs and ways. I mean, a lot of workplaces would be familiar with Reconciliation Australia and people do reconciliation action plans, which have their commitment to reconciliation. But you don't have to go as formal as that. Like when people do our programs, if they liked an activity like looking at the map of Aboriginal story, we say, well, take it along to your next meeting and have everyone identify who the traditional owners are and then you can start bringing these values of inclusion and belonging in the workplace. Mm. Because everything that we teach, I mentioned, like it's applicable to all. It's all about creating an inclusive belonging workplace, not just for Indigenous people, it's for all people. With our programs, we've got loads on um, our website. You can actually do a lot of interactivities like I mentioned that diversity quiz you can do the and I've adapted the privilege walk to look at the gap that exists within Australia you can jump online Mm. on our site and do that we've got this beautiful calendar with indigenous dates on it that you can download we all have when you talked about asking questions we have ask auntie and ask an ally Mm. where people can write in and ask any question they like and we'll do a up to two minute video response and we that person remains anonymous. And a lot of those, particularly Auntie Manya's, been going viral across, uh, yeah, on LinkedIn and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, if people got lots of pathways with us, one particularly that might be of interest to your listeners is, well, we have our books, mm. Seven Steps to Practical Reconciliation and Allyship, and we've got Auntie Manya has one on Aboriginal spirituality, Journey into Dreamtime, which touches on many of the, concepts mm. you talked about today published next year will be a children's version of ask auntie and then also after that languages book that auntie money has written so lots of resources out there and yeah. you know on audible and all those mm. ebooks and things but in terms of our programs we have yarning circles and both online mm. and in person and but for individuals it's called reconciliation pathways if people really want to go deeper in this allyship there actually there's three stages of accreditation for that. In the first stage, ally accreditation, we only launched last late year. last year yeah. and we've had over 200 people, people go, now through, go yeah. through that. And we go into each of those steps plus a few additional and people have to demonstrate competencies in those steps. So obsession, Auntie Manu, and our, our obsession is mm. to have 10 mm. million more allies across Australia. So that's mm. part of that. Yeah. I think that would be a brilliant goal for this country. So thank you, Auntie Manya and Carla, for doing the incredible work that you do. 
for those listening who do want to connect with their resources more, it's Evolve Communities. We will share all of the information in our show notes. Carla and Auntie Manya, thank you again so much for being with us today on We Are Human Leaders. Sally and I have both learned so much from you both, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to be part of this conversation with us today. Oh, we're delighted. So thank you for inviting us. And we say igeso, yeah. Thank yep. you in Torres Strait. Yeah, in Yiddigal Ghana. In Yiddigal Ghana. Go well. Go well. Big <laughs> Thanks for being a part of today's conversation with Auntie Manya Andrews and Carla Rogers. At Human Leaders, we believe reconciliation is a critical necessity to create workplaces and societies that thrive and feel inclusive for all human beings. We hope you'll take the allyship pledge with us. To find more information on today's conversation, including the links to Auntie Manya and Carla's work, check out our show notes at www.wearehumanleaders.com forward slash podcast. We'll see you next episode.